Me, 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 me. Oh, okay, but we are talking into these things, right? I'll call them back in. Ooh! Give it a couple call, a couple rings. <laughs> Hello? Oh, uh, there you are. Hello. Hey! hey. hey. Oh, no. Go, um, do you hey. have... Yeah, I can hear you just great. Do you have a video, Skype, or are you just audio? Oh, do you want to do video? If you can, but if not, it's not a big deal. Yeah, we can do it. The lighting is not very cute in here, and I've got someone working behind me, but if you it's want video, let's do video. All right. Awesome. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and start, and then we'll get right into it. So, all right. like, three, okay. two, Okay, welcome to Lisa Beats Your Meat, episode 20. Tonight we have a legit celebrity. It's a big deal. <laughs> uh, Nathan Runkle is Skyping in with us to talk about his new book, Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. Um, Nathan, I knew him from earlier in my life when I was growing up, and now we have him. So welcome, Nathan. Hey, thanks for having me. This is Fun. Yeah. Quite a pleasure. Oh. Quite a pleasure, yes. Awesome. Um, so your book came out when? A couple weeks ago? It's like ago? last week, right? Fresh yeah, off? Yep, September 12th. Okay. Um, and we read it. We loved it. It was well written. I didn't know Thank you were you. such a good writer. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I have some editing help, but uh, no, I was, do what I can. It was good. Um, so Jimmy's going to take it off with a couple questions to start. Yeah, nice to meet you, Nathan. I'm Jimmy. Nice and, to meet uh, you, Jim. I feel like I know you because I just <laughs> ripped. So I just had a knee surgery, so I've been on the couch for three days. Uh, and, three uh, days. It's been like seven days. Uh, seven days. Well, three days that I, I read your book front to back, and um, I can't say enough about it. And that's what we're, we're you know excited to be able to um, talk to you about today. Um, Thank you. But I guess from the beginning and – um, our show is kind of about not just living a vegan lifestyle, but how we all got here. And uh, your story was kind of fascinating. Um, you, as Lisa, you know, kind of came across this at a young age. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought maybe you could start by sharing um, how you got into this kind of animal um, world and how how this all started for you and, and for uh, FMA. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I was essentially slated to be a fifth generation farmer. I come from a you know, long line of mostly crop farmers and was born on a couch in rural Ohio. So most of my early childhood memories were on the John Deere tractor with my dad and my uncle, and my grandfather. So that was really my base. Um, I always had a natural connection with animals and nature. I always had a a natural ability to sort of put myself in the place of other animals and empathize with their suffering and their needs. Uh, that being said, growing up in this environment, uh, I was surrounded by hunters, trappers, fishermen, farmers who um, didn't really uh, view animals in the same way that I did. I would went on a few hunting trips with my uncle when I was younger, go hunt, uh, fishing with him. And, you know, seeing the look of fear and pain in the animal's eyes just always stuck with me and it always felt wrong. Um, when I was six, I rescued a rat from a breeder. Uh, he was going slated to be used in animal experimentation. I named him Caesar and Caesar became like one of my best friends as a kid and taught me that all animals, not just those that we consider to be pets, not just dogs and cats, all animals have the same spark for life. They have 
the same uh, level of curiosity and intelligence and um, fear, but also the ability to love. Um, so Caesar really started to show me that the only difference between animals that we call pets and those that we call pests or those that we call food and those that we call friends are just our perception of them. Um, there's, it's, it's not about the animals, it's about us. So um, he started to open my eyes to um, the inconsistencies in our views uh, when it comes to our treatment of animals. Fast forward a few years, when I was 11, I saw some people protesting the fur industry on the local evening news in Dayton, Ohio, and they showed a short clip of animals in underwater uh, traps and leg hold traps. And I remember seeing that same look of fear in those animals' eyes that I saw um, when I was with my uncle on the, on the hunting trips. And that was the first time that I heard the term animal rights activist. And it stuck in my mind that there were people who were taking the feelings of empathy and, and respect for animals and actually doing something about it and not just accepting the status quo as being okay when it comes to, to our treatment of animals. Fast forward a few more years, uh, I got a bit more interested in animal rights, started to um, do more research. I went to my first animal rights conference in Washington, D.C. when I was 13 and then went vegan when I was 15. Um, mm. Just learned about the cruelty in the dairy industry and the egg industry. Um, actually had a, a dream that I was a dairy cow after seeing so many videos of how they suffer in factory farms. But this was really visceral and I woke up sort of in a panic and decided I couldn't support this industry anymore um, because I, I felt what that hopelessness and frustration uh, was like um, in this dream. And then literally a few days later, there was an animal abuse case in my backyard, essentially, at our local high school in, in this small town of St. Paris that involved the teacher of an agricultural class, uh, program at the school uh, bringing to, to school a bucket of day-old piglets that he tried to kill that morning on his farm. He was a pig farmer. He raised mm -hmm. over 10,000 pigs, a large operation. And when he arrived to the school that morning, one of the piglets was still alive. So a student in the class walked over, grabbed this piglet by her hind legs, and slammed her head first into the ground. The piglet still didn't die. She was in horrible distress. A few of the students grabbed this piglet, left the classroom, went down the hallway to another teacher who was known as being sympathetic towards animals. She left the school, went to a local veterinarian, had the piglet euthanized. There was nothing they could do to help this piglet at this point. Her next stop was the local sheriff's department where she asked that animal cruelty charges be filed and they were. Became a big deal in this local farming community. Um, went to trial and the very first day of that trial these animal cruelty charges were dismissed. Because in Ohio, like most states in the US, if something is considered quote standard agricultural practice, it is exempt from cruelty prosecution. No matter how cruel it is, no matter how much suffering it causes to animals. So that case illustrated to me back in 1999 that there needed to be an organization in my local community that would give a voice to animals that were labeled food and raised on factory farms. It was clear to me that had this been a puppy that was slammed headfirst into the ground or had this been a kitten, the outcome would have been very different. Um, they would have been prosecuted uh, for this act of, of horrific uh, animal abuse. They would have been fined maybe even jailed, referred for psychiatric evaluation, mm -hmm. um, prevented from ever owning animals. But because it was a pig, um, it was very different. So that, that is my origin story and the origin story of, of Mercy for Animals. 
That's, Man. That's awesome. Um, I just wanted to piggyback or ask about that. So um, I knew you as a child, I guess, or I don't know, we were <laughs> children, adolescent. But <laughs> I feel like all children have an affinity for a love of animals. Like we have a child, he's eight, he loves animals, but yet he will still eat animals grudgingly um, in front of us. And I'm just wondering your take on what what happens when a child's growing up? Where do they change their their perception of what that animal is? You know, like I've taken James to um, Sunrise Sanctuary and we've seen Wesley and we've seen the horses and cows and the pigs and we're like, you know, these are awesome animals and he's he's in love. And then something happens in his brain where it gets on his plate and it's no longer that animal that um you know he saw so i'm curious your take on when does that happen what does that happen and i I guess how can we help our children not see that you know yeah i think you're absolutely right i think that compassion for animals and compassion for others is really uh, innate i think that that we are that we're all really born with that you know there's this sort of classic saying that if you if you put a a, a rabbit and an apple and a crib with a child, see which one they play with and which ones they, they eat. And I think that there's something very true about that. You know, most children don't um, want to abuse or kill animals. They're fascinated by them. They want to love them. They want to pet them. You know, they want to be, be, be close to them. And that was certainly my experience, you know, growing up on, on a farm, most of my friends and neighbors were involved in farm life and, and the sense of raising animals for 4-H projects or mm-hmm. Future Farmers of America projects. And almost every single one of them would develop these strong bonds with the pigs or the calves that they were raising. They would give them names. They would be their best friends. They would be members of their family. And then they would sell them by the pound mm-hmm. um, at auction. And, you know, these kids would just be heartbroken. Yeah. Um, they'd have to have the animals literally dragged away from them in tears. So to me, that, that is the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would see with, with, with a lot of, um, you know, my friends that the next year they would still do the programs, but they would feel that that's kind of how it is. And as the years went by, they, they would become a bit more desensitized. Yeah, that's right. And I think they would be told by their family and by their 4-H instructors that literally this is just the way that it is. Mm-hmm. And it might feel uncomfortable, but, you know, we need to do this. So right. sort of get over it in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I rejected that um, growing up and, and sort of held on to, to this compassion for others. Yeah. But I think, you know, it, it's a lot of it is about... Um, social norms I think that kids as they get older and they're you know in classes and with others they they want to fit in and if other kids are eating meat um you know there 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 maybe is an inclination to to want to fit in at the same process um and I think that for for a lot of people not just kids when when you buy you know meat dairy or eggs from the grocery store it's so far removed Mm -hmm. from the animals themselves um, it, it's, it doesn't really even resemble an individual anymore with a life and a story. Um, and it just looks like a, a product. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that, that that is something that everyone faces is there is this sense of a desire for willful ignorance. People don't want to know really what's happening um, to these animals because with that comes a responsibility, I think, to do something about it. So people, um, I think, just want to sort of be in the dark so they can comfortably 
eat animal products with um, without any guilt. Right. Definitely. Well, um, well changing gears here, um, <laughs> and I, I agree with that. And like I said, <laughs> we have a stepson and we have a baby now who's, what, six months old? And, yeah. Um, just the social norms, the culture is what I think is changing. Yeah. And I it think is. I think your book does a good job of showing that um, towards the end. But When I was in the fifth grade of vegetarian, it was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and yeah. I feel like there's a normal <laughs> amount of kids that are vegetarian and or vegan, and it's not as bizarre. Yeah, it's becoming more common. Um, I personally, I'm fairly new to this whole vegan world. This is like two years for me. And uh, part of the reason we started this podcast is because, you know, there's a lot of things that we want to say and it's hard to say to people sometimes. And mm-hmm. we want to get our points across without, you know, an argument, just just an open discussion. But what I was mostly fascinated about and I got I get into the vegan world from like a health aspect, from an environmental aspect, um, not necessarily the treatment of animals, um, but reading your book and the investigative stuff that you guys have done um, really surprised me. I Personally, as a meat eater, you know, partially because I was just trying to tune it out, thought that these examples of animal cruelty or things that scrolled down my Facebook um, were the exception. They were not the norm at all. And reading your book, I'm starting to think that that's not the truth. Like, I I don't I I guess I want to ask you, like, with all this investigations and stuff, um, this is more than the exception, correct? The way animals are treated. That's right. I mean, this this is the rule. And um I think your your thought of hey, what I'm seeing on on social media, this is these are the bad apples, and mm-hmm. you know, but this isn't representative. The animals must live happy, healthy lives, and mm-hmm. that is the exact opposite of what's happening. Um, you know, most people don't realize that there's not a single federal law that provides protection to animals during their lives on factory farms. And if you look at the the treatment of animals at slaughter most of them, over 90%, are birds, and they also have no federal protection at slaughter, which means that that it is completely standard for them to have their throat slit while they're fully conscious, and for many of them, millions, to go into scalding tanks of water where they're alive. This is just built into like the legal framework. Um, as I mentioned, the standard agricultural practices being exempt from cruelty prosecution, um, that that's very telling. You know, It would be illegal to treat dogs and cats in the way that we abuse farm animals. Just on the day-to-day um, factory farm, if, if you switched out a cow or pig or a chicken for a dog or a cat, you would, you would be a criminal um, to treat them in that way. That's just the truth. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, I, I think people need to understand that these, you know, idyllic barnyard scenes that we grew up with and that you may still see some, um, on off of the back roads is not where most of the food, meat, dairy, or eggs is coming from. They're coming from these huge industrial factory farms. You know the the Tyson Foods of the world, the Smithfield Foods of the world, um, and these animals are treated as disposable commodities, as property, as resources, as meat, dairy, and egg producing machines. And the focus of these companies is on the bottom line and they know that they can cram more animals into smaller spaces and get more productivity out of that space, that building, that cage, even if that individual animal is suffering. So, you know, that's why we see things like animals being castrated without painkillers, their tails being cut off without painkillers. You know, these are done because of the overcrowded conditions, but they're not using pain relief because it's an added expense and an added time, and they want to cut as much of that out as possible. But... You know, so and I talk about a lot of this in the book. I also talk about how 
many of these animals are prisoners of their own bodies. They're really sort of Frankenstein animals that have been genetically bred to grow so large and so fast that for the case of chickens that are killed for food, they're killed when they're babies. They're 45 days old, if that. And 90% of them have a hard time walking by the time that they're killed. Um, So cruelty comes in a lot of different forms. It's not just beating an animal. It's intensive confinement where the animals can't turn around for their entire lives. They can't spread their limbs. They can't engage in natural behaviors, you know. Um, Chickens should be able to act like chickens and pigs should be able to act like pigs, but that's not what's happening um, on factory farms. And then you throw onto that a workplace that is surrounded by violence. And what you get is you get oftentimes underprivileged people taking these jobs out of desperation, but they're surrounded by cruelty and they become desensitized um, to what's happening. They're forced to do a lot of work in a short period of time and the animals are viewed as obstacles um, to getting their work done. And that's when we start to see animals being beaten mercilessly and shocked with electric prods and you know just the horrible stuff that, that people see in these videos. And it's rampant, it happens everywhere. We've done about 60 undercover investigations and They've all been selected at random, and every single time we find just horrible, horrible cruelty that anyone with with any ounce of compassion would find to be absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, I'm fascinated too by how you came across these 60 studies. Um, the characters that you, I mean, they're Choose. they're human beings that you talk about, but and you they really have to do go undercover. You really do characterize these people in your book as to what these the sacrifices they have to make, not just to go into this place, but in their whole entire yeah. life to capture this stuff. Yeah, how is it getting those people, you know, they're they're someone who has compassion for, such compassion for animals is basically like, has to put a mask on their face to go in to get this information and not let people know that's how they feel. That seems like almost impossible. <laughs> how do yeah. you find these people? Well, I definitely believe that undercover investigators are the hidden heroes, the unsung heroes of the movement. You know, Mm -hmm. by by the very nature, they are operating in the shadows. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're doing this work not for recognition, but but to help animals. And these are individuals who are passionate animal advocates, um, and they do this work because they believe rightfully so, that it's one of the most effective things that they can do to bring about change for animals. Um, but the sacrifices are are just um, almost unbelievable. You know, they have to leave behind their friends, their family, everything that they know that's comfortable to them to work sometimes for months and months on end out in the middle of nowhere with no one knowing what they're doing, um, putting themselves in physical danger, um, really risking their safety to go mm-hmm. undercover. Um, and you know, this is physically difficult work. Slaughterhouses, for example, are one of the most dangerous jobs in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're working with, 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 with animals that are kicking and screaming and defecating, limbs, you know, flying everywhere, high-speed um, machinery, spinning blades, knives. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a grueling environment. And then you layer on top of that the emotional uh, impact of this work, the emotional trauma of um, working in a factory farm or slaughterhouse. I talk in the book about perpetration-induced traumatic stress um, disorder, a form of PTSD that investigators um, oftentimes suffer from, but also just everyday workers inside of factory mm-hmm. farms and slaughterhouses. Like these are these are uh, dangerous, but also demoralizing, um, degrading jobs, and that's oftentimes why it is undocumented workers that take them because 
nobody has aspirations of working on a on a kill floor when they're children. You <laughs> yeah. know, this is people talk about being a, a firefighter or a doctor. You know, they don't talk about wanting to slit the throats of animals for eight to twelve hours a day. No. Um, and there is a there is a toll of that, and that toll is that it really degrades the spirit of people, the humanity of people. And I talk in the book about the Sinclair effect, which is something that Upton Sinclair um, put forward over 100 years ago, saying that there was a real correlation between um, violent crime uh, in communities where slaughterhouses were based um, and, and violent crime and, and, and the jobs there. And um, a group of psychologists looked at this recently and said, yes, this is this is real. And you can imagine if you have a large workforce that is slitting the throats of animals all day and then going home with that PTSD, you have high rates of drug and alcohol um, abuse as forms of self-medication. You have higher rates of domestic violence. And they, they even found higher rates of um, homicide, some of which were carried out in the same manner in which animals were slaughtered, people Yikes. having those slit. Wow. So there's, there are a lot of victims in this system. The animals, obviously, the most numerous, but I think that there are a lot of humans um, that pay the toll as well. Um, have you ever had any like slip up where someone's been found inside these slaughterhouses? <laughs> um, like I said, we've done over 60 investigations and there have been some close calls. They yeah. have like yeah. pinhole cameras? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're wearing pinhole sized hidden cameras and sometimes you have to get creative and work them into candy bars or all sorts of things. Wow. Um, so there, we, we work with the same, um, same company that makes a lot of this equipment for the FBI. So this is, this is sophisticated work. You know, this isn't just, this isn't somebody just wandering in and, you know, pointing a camera around. No. My iPhone like, in my chest pocket <laughs> with a camera. Please talk <laughs> here. A lot of, a lot of training. And, and, you know, you ask where these people come from. Like we hire probably 1% of the people that apply to be an investigator because once people find out that this is not, you know, sexy, glamorous, James Bond type work, um, yeah. this is difficult and dangerous. Um, a lot of people sort of self-select themselves out, but you know, the, the background is is diverse. Everyone that's an investigator is unified by their compassion for animals, but we have former police officers who have become investigators. We have, you know, former women that have worked at animal sanctuaries providing direct care to animals who have become investigators. So, um, you know, bravery and courage and determination come in all shapes and sizes and and with all sorts of backgrounds, and, and that is, uh, that's the case for our investigators as well. That's, yeah, I think the, the results, obviously, um, would be enough to keep these people going, because you guys have had tremendous success, I mean, not just yeah. legislatively, but um, legally, socially. Um, prosecuting, yeah, and socially, but going after these companies, and then also after the, the people who purchase products from these companies. Um, yeah, I want to know what what uh, what do you think is your biggest success? Who's what's the biggest piece of legislation or difference from these investigations? The biggest payoff? Yeah, it's kind of like choosing your famous your favorite child. I think if you had a bunch of <laughs> you've had a lot of big successes. <laughs> there, there are a lot of successes. Um, you know, some of them, which I talk about in the book, is is getting Nestle, the world's largest food company, to adopt the most comprehensive farm animal welfare policy ever um, in 90 countries um, wow. all at once. And wow. this essentially addressed 
the, uh, the intensive confinement of cows, pigs, and chickens, the rapid genetic growth, the slaughter of animals while they're still conscious, uh, mutilations without painkillers. Um, so, so that's something I'm very proud of that really helped set the stage for other campaigns, like getting um, Walmart to stop. Sorry, my neighbor <laughs> stopped over. Or, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> This is in the real time, authentic. Energy. Yeah, this is how it rolls. <laughs> so sorry. Um, so no, Nestle. Yeah, which actually has <laughs> a lot of roots in Ohio too, right? Yeah, Nestle um, was a big, big success. But you know that helped drive campaign against Walmart, the world's mm -hmm. largest retailer, to adopt a similar policy. And and these are changes that affect literally millions and millions of animals every single year. Mm -hmm. And they help knock down dominoes that help to change the entire food industry. So really proud about that. In terms of legislation, um, you know, it's nearly impossible to get any federal legislation changed right now for, for farm bizarre. animals. So the change is happening on a state level. Mm -hmm. And much of the state change is being driven by ballot initiatives. Okay. Um, you know, citizens gathering hundreds of thousands of signatures and placing these issues directly before voters. And that's because a lot of state legislators don't want to take on the agriculture industry. Mm -hmm. They don't oh, want to take on factory. We know a lot about that. A lot about this in Ohio, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. There's a long history. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the successful um, legislative uh, campaigns that I talk a little bit about in the book is Proposition 2, um, that banned the confinement of calves, pigs, and chickens, essentially in crates where they couldn't spread their wings or lie down comfortably, um, mostly aimed at the 20 million egg-laying hens that are confined in, in cages in California. That was followed up with uh, some work to ban the sale of eggs in California from hens that are kept in these cruel cages. I also talk in the book about a big initiative in Ohio um, that led to about half a million signatures being gathered. Um, there was an agreement, a compromise that was reached before it actually went forward to voters, but it helped to phase out gestation crates for breeding pigs in, in um, Ohio and veal crates and start to address some of the other issues. So far from perfect and far from what we all would have liked, but it was a meaningful step forward in Ohio, which had essentially been deadlocked on any progress uh, mm -hmm. for, for animals um, from a legislative standpoint. Mm -hmm. I got to ask, though, um, the one thing that wasn't in the book, um, and I feel like you, you're a very humble guy, but you've done a lot to these companies that's probably hurt their bottom line. Um, <laughs> are you, you know, in any way... Like obviously legally a target, but even beyond that, um, you're, you're messing with some pretty giant corporations and a lot of money. Like, do you feel like personally that you're ever in danger, or what's the backlash? Legally in danger, or actually physically in danger? <laughs> do you um, need a bodyguard? You know, I I choose not to live in fear. You know, I I uh, I choose to live from a place of of love and courage. So I don't I don't like feel like I'm in a, a constant state of um, fear or distress i'm sure that that someone could yeah. um we're not anti-business you know mm -hmm. um and i talk in the book about the future of food like we, we are pro-business we are pro-feeding the world we are pro-agriculture we're anti-animal cruelty and we're anti you know subjecting animals to just lives filled with misery and there there is a path forward for a humane economy that 
feeds people and is better for the environment and better for animals. So, um, you know, there are real solutions that all of us would benefit from. Um, but in the process of getting towards this more humane economy, yeah, we are oftentimes going head to head with big companies. Um, and a lot of that involves us exposing abuses, sort of their dirty laundry for mm -hmm. the public to see. When companies won't make changes just because it's the right thing to do, um, that's when we need to go forward to the media and to their customers and say, is it really okay with you that animals are you know, being kept in cages where they can't move or having parts of their bodies cut off without any painkillers? And most people would say, no, it's not. So if companies don't behave because it's the ethical thing to do, then oftentimes they will behave because their bottom lines may be affected or they're worried about their brand image being tarnished. Um, so we always try to work proactively with companies, but if, if, if they're not interested in doing that, you know, our loyalty is to helping animals. Um, and we've never been sued in the 18 years that the organization really? around. Yeah. And that's because we have a great legal team and we, we take calculated risks. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know what the laws are and um, we know how to push the ball forward um, in a way that is in line with the laws. So the companies really have no ground to stand on right. for coming after us because we, we, um, we do follow laws and, uh, and we have brought about great change uh, by doing that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, can I ask something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here at Lisa Beats Your Meat Worldwide, um, I feel like we've given a lot of information on why to adopt a vegan lifestyle. You know, our whole spiel, we've gone through environmental and health aspects and compassion aspects. Um, but then the hard part, the nitty gritty, and you seem like a rather busy guy. How <laughs> do you sustain a healthy vegan lifestyle um, on the road, on the go. You know, that's what I feel like is the hardest thing for people to get is I the why is, is obvious and it's very understandable, but the how yeah. is super hard. Totally. I mean, Mercy for Animals, a big part of what we do is talk about the how um, because it is important. Um, it's important that people understand the why, but without the how, you know, there's there's no change. Right. So, and, and one of the ways in which we're addressing that is by helping to get new, better, um, tastier, more affordable plant-based products on the market. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, now it's just so widely available to get, like, awesome vegan products. Um, pretty much any any supermarket, I mean, you can go to you can go to Walmart and get essentially everything that you'd ever need. Um, yeah. It used to be almost impossible to find soy milk or rice milk, and now you can find it in a lot of 7-Elevens. You know, so yeah. the products the products are widely available now, and it's only increasing as demand is increasing. Yeah. You know, milk consumption is going down, soy milk consumption, rice milk consumption is going up. Um, the plant-based meat sector is increasing just by leaps and bounds. So every year it becomes a bit a bit easier. Right. And you know, we have a website, chooseveg.com, which we encourage people to go to. We have recipes, meal plans. You know, anyone with a smartphone or a computer can now Google, you know, vegan food yeah. um, and get get just whatever your favorite meal is, do that, but vegan version and right. uh, Google and you're good to go. Eating on the road, um, I think there's a few hacks that have been really helpful for me. I mean, some is just 
knowing where chipotles are so you can get vegan chipotle or getting veganizing um stuff at taco bell yes we're can big we talk we're, about we're taco big advocates <laughs> we go to taco bell all the time really big fan on the road when we travel <laughs> I, I understand they actually have a whole like specific like vegan uh vegan vegetarian menu that they advertise right. just get it get beans instead of meat no cheese no no uh no sour cream no and fresco golden. yeah pile it on i mean that alone you can essentially live off of while you're traveling yeah um but but beyond that i mean looking at mediterranean food ethiopian food indian food thai food um you know if you look at the global cuisine that's available in so many different cities most of this have most of these places have a huge variety of, of vegan options yeah. and you can throw tofu into it and all of that so i travel a lot most of the time i'm i'm away from home and have been to really all corners of the world world and i've always been able to to be a healthy vegan sometimes depending on where you're at you want to plan ahead you know bring some vegan cliff bars some you know some mixed nuts whatever it is but um yeah, I think a lot of people that that are new to veganism don't understand how that there are options around them. They just need to know where to look. Yeah, and those options are getting plenty. Or they're they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, well, that also then piggybacks on. You just went on um, like a worldwide trip. Saw you everywhere. <laughs> um, what does veganism in these world or these countries look like? Is it growing like it is in the United States? Um, you know, what's that look like? Yeah, it really depends. So I, I went to about 20 countries in, well, in a six-month period. And Jeez. it was <laughs> everywhere. It was everywhere from the Amazon rainforest to the Borneo rainforest to Hong Kong to Taipei to London to Iceland. And it varies, of course. But I will tell you, there is a noticeable um, global change that's happening. Iceland, for example, um, Vegan options everywhere, um, like incredible vegan options. You can go to gas stations while you're driving around the ring road and there will be vegan sandwiches and vegan burgers. Um, Berlin, vegan stuff everywhere. Uh, Tel Aviv, for example, huge vegan movement happening in Tel Aviv. Like huge number of people going vegetarian and vegan. Um, vegan restaurants popping up all over the place. Um, and a lot of places advertising and adding more vegan options. So, um, yeah, I'm seeing this as, as, as a global phenomenon, you know, in Hong Kong uh, as well, Taipei, um, lots of just incredible um, vegan dishes. So uh, there are a few places, some of the smaller islands um, that weren't super veg friendly, that it was a little bit of a challenge, but you just get some peanut butter and, you know, carry it in your bag and make sure mm. you're, you're taking care of yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I get overall, it. Pretty pretty exciting. That's yeah, I awesome. got I got to say, being fairly new to this world, I was you're two years in. You're not like I guess two years now. in. Yeah, but I, I'm the the typical non-vegan two years ago, like <laughs> as far as you can get from even considering it. And, um, and for then me, you met me, actually, it really didn't have anything to do with you. <laughs> it's funny, and I, no one believes me, but <laughs> I help sustain it. Um, but you know, I'm a we're teachers and stuff, and we you know we we have a lot of free time sometimes. But anyways, I. And this is, I'm probably not alone on this. It was just some Netflix documentaries. I watched Cowspiracy yeah. and I was like, no shit. And then I watched uh, a couple more and then I was like, well, my girlfriend's a vegan, so what a great option for this. I'll, I'll give this a whirl. 
Um, but do you feel like in the last, because you've been at this for a while, mm-hmm. do you feel like in the last like year, like this is really exponentially becoming more of a thing that's happening in this country? Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, there was a study done recently that found that 1% of baby boomers identify as vegetarian, 4% of Gen X identify as baby, uh, as, um, as vegetarian or uh, vegan. 12% of millennials identify Jeez. as vegetarian. So the trajectory, you know, generationally mm-hmm. is just, just yeah. incredible. That's awesome. Um, and, and yeah, I think, like you said, Netflix is, is really changing the game. I mean, you have films like What the Health um, and Cowspiracy and even the film Okja, um, all opening people's hearts and minds to uh, veganism in a huge way. I mean, I get in a lift now and be talking to the Lyft driver and they'll have just gone vegan, mm-hmm. um, a hairdresser that's just gone vegan, like friends that I haven't seen in 10 years, um, all largely um, because of these documentaries that are becoming so widely available. You know, I think that social media is also pay- playing a really key role. Um, when I started Mercy Frambles eight years ago, there was no Facebook, um, there was no YouTube. So we would have to stand on street corners with <laughs> yeah. leaflets and maybe some Jimmy rigged, uh, you know, TV screen trying to get people to stop for, you know, a few seconds to watch this video. And maybe we would get, you know, a couple dozen people to stop, or maybe we'd do a screening at a library and get a couple dozen people to come. Now, Mercy for Animals videos get a quarter billion views every year. Um, so that has really opened the floodgates for this information to be distributed and for people to educate themselves. So I'm really optimistic about the future on a lot of fronts. And part of it is because of this. We live in a much more connected area at a time. And factory farming is just so brutal and get, runs against the moral fiber of so many people, you know, regardless of where you're from or what your background is, most people don't believe that animals should be tortured for food. And mm-hmm. when you're able to pull the curtains back on that and show people what's happening, um, you know, most people are kind and compassionate and want to do the right thing. And when the right thing, um, becomes more accessible and, um, you know, easier to do, I think we're going to continue to see more and more people move towards a plant-based diet. Right. And factory farming, that can't be sustainable. Like, it just can't be. (laughs) You can't feed (laughs) all these people all this meat and dairy and expect it to work. It's just not. I think that, and I think this book comes in at a perfect time for me. And like I said, I like to compare myself to this up and coming trend, but like the new vegan. Yeah. And I read everything I can get my hands on, um, when it comes to, you know, the health environment, everything vegan based. And I Google it every day. And a lot of it's because, you know, we have this podcast that we love and we love to share it and I want all the information out there. Um, but to be honest, I haven't come across a lot on the actual, um, animals and what's actually happening to the animals and i think that i came here not because i was compassionate about animals not that i wasn't but it was really easy to ignore that as a meat eater um i didn't have to go out of my way to ignore it but i think this is coming in at a time where everybody's excited about this and now i don't know this book for me was like kind of the the nail in the coffin like this is this is this is going to go full circle now yeah thank you yeah yeah it was it was exciting for me. I mean, the book is, is partly about my journey, but it's also about the undercover investigators. And this is really the first book that's ever been written that shares their stories or shares the, the story of, of any 
factory farm investigator in this way, in this level of detail, where people really get to know who these people are, why they do this work, the sacrifices that they make, and um, what they uncover. So I'm, I'm really um, proud of the book for that reason, and to be able to share their stories with the world, and the short stories of a lot of animals that they encountered um, in these factory farms, some of whom you know, were a brief moment, but being able to share their stories is really important. And a few animals that we were able to rescue that, um, you know, people can sort of uh, see what their life is like before and after um, emerging from these terrible places. Um, okay, well, I, I also want to hit on one thing before we wrap this up. And uh, you've had some testing or you've been influential with the lab meat, uh, Memphis meats. Have you tried some? What was I it did, like? yeah. I, I talk a little bit about this in the book, How too. How is that? You know, <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned that this factory farm thing just can't be sustainable, and that's that's absolutely right. You know, it's, it's estimated that the human population is going to surpass 9 billion by 2050, and that's a lot of mouths to feed. Um, that is that is a huge strain on our planet, and we're already feeling, obviously, the strain of our current population. Meat, meat production with raising animals is just so inefficient. You know, it takes so much land, water, energy. You have to raise all the feed, funnel it through the animals. They spend most of that just as energy existing, you know, defecating being. So from just a, a, um, a business standpoint, it's not the most efficient business model. No. So I talk in the book about what's being referred to as the second domestication, which is cellular agriculture, domesticating um, cells versus the the entire animal themselves. The first domestication being, you know, ten thousand years ago, the domestication of of of, of livestock animals, um, the beginning of the Neolithic period. So I, I believe that that the that cellular agriculture is the best shot that we have of feeding the growing um, population, solving a lot of our environmental problems, and really bringing about a total end to factory farming and animal agriculture as we know it. And cellular agriculture essentially is, a, is taking a harmless biopsy from a, a live animal, um, getting stem cells and growing them in a suitable medium and essentially a bioreactor or brewery type um, setting. And it's already being done. Um, it's already proved to, to work. And one of the companies that's in this space is Memphis Meats. Uh, and it was founded by Uma Valetti, who was a cardiologist was saving lives in the hospital, saw that there was this technology being used to grow human tissues for, for medical purposes, and said, well, you know, meat is just tissue from animals. We can use the same technology here. And started this company. Um, it's, it's now, uh, it's produced the world's first clean meat, which is what we call it. We call this, this um, cultured meat clean meat. Um, because it is free of all the pathogens that you get with uh, traditional animal products. You know, you're not looking at the same amount of E. coli, salmonella, camelobacter, but it's also clean like clean energy. It's clean for the environment. Um, some of the studies suggest that it takes up to 90% less land, less water, less energy to produce. Um, and it can, in many cases, be produced much faster than animal uh, products because you don't have to raise you know, pigs are about six months old when they're slaughtered. They're still baby animals, but that's six months where if you're just growing the tissue, it can happen much faster. Right. So um, I've had the pleasure of, of supporting and working with some of these just incredible innovators. And 
and tasting a very small piece of the world's first um, clean meatball. Um, it, was the first time, it was the first time in 16 years that I had eaten um, meat? meat from an animal. And, uh, you know, it was meat. Yeah. It, it, it was meat. So I'm, I'm really excited um, for this to, to come to market. I think it um, just... Do you know a time it. frame? Well, it's it's a financial thing too, right? You had like a three thousand dollar bite of a meatball, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, very very small piece. Um, you know, there, there, so there are a number of companies working in this space. One of them is Hampton Creek, um, which is does a lot of other plant based products, yeah. but they're now going to be doing cultured uh, meat or clean meat. They're they are saying publicly that they plan to have some of these products on the market by the end of the year or early next year. What? Um, I think that the first round of clean meat will be uh, partly clean meat and partly um, plant-based uh, like uh, proteins that are blended. Okay. Um, Memphis Meats uh, is saying within the next five years they should have like totally um, clean meat products um, on market. But yeah, so much of it is about scaling scaling um, the products up. That's awesome. Man. Super cool. Yeah. Well. I guess in conclusion here, um, (laughs) one big takeaway I wanted to, um, you know, have you address, uh, we're both high school teachers. We both teach social studies. I'm a government teacher. Um, we teach our kids that to be part of our communities and our state and our country, it's important to be active. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. I feel like today it's much easier for us to just sit and, you know, like a Facebook comment or retweet somebody or, you know, be bold enough to write our own Facebook comment. Um, but in reality, the biggest takeaway from this book, not just for, you know, fighting for animals, but fighting for anything that you believe in, um, you kind of end the book. I mean, throughout the book, you address this, but you end the book by, you know, emphasizing the importance Don't of... Don't give the end away. <laughs> the importance of being, you know, active, of, of standing up for what you believe in, of, of donating money, of, of donating your time and all the value that comes back to you as a human being for you know, working towards that. I was hoping you could end by maybe speaking on that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I talk about a number of things. One is finding your own unique voice. Um, I think a lot of times people say, oh gosh, I'm, I'm shy or I don't have much time or I wouldn't know how to do this. That's totally fine. There is a beautiful, authentic, fulfilling, meaningful way of advocating on behalf of animals or any other issue that, um, that works for you, you know? And I, I talk about a former executive of um, Burger King who saw the light and took his background in the food industry and started his own plant-based food company. I talk about a vegan race car driver who uses that very you know, unique talent to promote veganism to NASCAR fans who aren't exposed to it very often. If you're an artist, you can use your platform um, to inspire people. If you're a teacher, you can educate. You know, if you're a writer, you can write about these topics. If you're a business person, you can use the the wealth that you accumulate. You can earn to give and, and finance and fund um, those that are working in the trenches. There's there's not a one size fits all um, to be an effective advocate, and it takes some soul searching and creativity to find that. But um, I'm a firm believer in it. And I do talk about donating to organizations um, in the book because a lot of people say, how do I help? And the truth is that is one of the best ways is to fund the most effective organizations doing this work. It 
it takes money to launch campaigns and do investigations and and win court battles and change laws um, and to win hearts and minds. It it takes dedication and bravery and courage, but it also takes resources. So I, I talk a little bit about that in, in the book and how um, you know philanthropy or, or charitable giving shouldn't be viewed as something being taken away from you. It should be viewed as an act of fulfillment, um, a way of um, having your beliefs and values um, put into action. And I, I talk about how, you know, we are all sort of in this searching for, for, um, for happiness. Everyone wants to live a happy life. Mm-hmm. Um, and how what's more important than happiness is meaning and having meaning in your life and how that can lead to, to feelings of happiness and connection. And, you know, for, for so many of, for, for myself and so many of our supporters, um, you know, having meaning, and to me, it's hard to think of something more meaningful than protecting animals who are so weak and vulnerable, um, really enriches our own lives. And whether it's volunteering or donating or whatever it is that you do to, to put that meaning into action, it is one of the most fulfilling, um, heartwarming things that you can do with your life and your time. Wow. Awesome. Well put. Well, this is good. <laughs> you've you've really made it since the last time I uh, I think I hung out with you. <laughs> you really came a long way. Um, well, we're will looking. I, yeah. Will I sit, will I be seeing you at the Columbus Book Event? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say okay. you're coming Sunday. to town, right? Yep. We'll Sunday, be there. Yes. I like mentioned it to my mom. I was like, "Are you going?" And she was like, "Ugh, I'm like planning it." I was like, yeah, "Okay, see, mom." I've, <laughs> I've heard that she has been putting flyers around all town, all, all around town. I I love Linda, and I yeah. cannot wait to yeah. see her give her a big hug. Yeah. Well, she's in Montreal. She just said that um, there was a they like ate a bunch of vegan food up in Montreal. So she's living it up, man. She's good. Yeah, as so. she should. So yeah, she'll she'll be there Sunday, and we will too. And we're looking awesome. forward to it. And um, I don't know. This was a great interview. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. I really yeah, like your you book, man. Pleasure. I'm going to be talking about it for a, for a while. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So. I hope that everyone watching will get a copy. We will push that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can too. Get get us a quarter billion views on this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go 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 pick up that book. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Um, well, thanks for uh, talking with us, and uh, we'll yeah. see you Sunday then. I'll see you in a few days. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Nathan. Okay. Bye. So I end the interview. You good? Are right. you so pausing that? Don't no, pause I, that. I didn't end the show though. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna apply for sixty minutes. Wow, yeah. Well, that was good. I think it was a good interview. Maybe not sixty minutes. I want something uh more legit. I want like my own talk show now. I'm, I'm like good. uh like Oprah? I wanna be Oprah. Yeah, you don't you don't want to share it with other vegan Oprah. Uh that was good though. That was good. He's guy's so good. good. He knows what's up. He does. He's like He's professional. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think this book's gonna do really well. Like I said, for real, um, I'm. I didn't even drink my beer during that. I was, I was like, I, was, I don't know. I think this is like really. Every professional. time I took a sip, I'm like, is he looking at me? <laughs> Should I be drinking beer? Oof. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, anyways, yeah, Sorry. that's that's Nathan Runkle of uh, Mercy for Animals. Mercy for so, Animals. So backdrop. Um, Nathan is from around Columbus and I think I've mentioned this before my mother um, was very influential in the animal rights community in Columbus so he was drawn to her and her group 
And uh, there, my mother used to be a part of a group called Poet, which Poet. was a local thing like PETA, but more local. And I think he was drawn to that. And then he created MFA. And now he's big time. But I knew him growing up. Um, like, I went and saw his Mercy for Animals office in L.A. We always knew he was a big deal. That's, I mean, if you read the book, like, I he's mean. He's like, I want to thank Lisa and Chuck. He, he didn't mention you. He did mention yeah. Sunrise Sanctuary in it. Um, but it's just, it's fascinating w- the magnitude of this operation. Like, I don't know what PETA does. I don't know anything about PETA. But I've heard of PETA. Well, um, but, but I feel like this company is rivaling PETA. Yeah, PETA's not that they're trying to little... rival, but they're they're doing something different. But they are on the level, if not probably beyond, when it I comes to like. I would say they're better than PETA in the fact that PETA got this kind of reputation of. Um, they're like, more cr- they, activism. Their PETA is um, extremism in uh, animal rights. Do you remember Whereas when MFA is not as they're extreme, Barack Obama killed a fly once in the White House and no. PETA got mad. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, that's the image of PETA. Whereas I don't think MFA MFA doesn't have that image at all. So. Well, I think what they do that he said is unique, and that's why this book is good. Like, I mean, even if this book wasn't good, I'd tell you it was good because we just interviewed him. No, actually, I wouldn't at this point. It was good. Like, it's really good um, because it. It, like he said, I don't think anyone's ever done this. I'm yeah. into like watching crime shows. It's all the conspiracy parts. Or investigative parts. Yeah. journalism. But to read about what the – really the bulk of the book is these guys and girls giving up their lives as an individual moving to these bizarre towns. For months. And then living in hotels but going into this every day with hidden cameras on. And that shit's cool. Like did that's, they have to kill the animals? Yeah, they had to – oh, my God. Well, they didn't have to kill kill them. Well, they did have to, like, kill them the proper way. They didn't have to kill them the, the, the inhumane way, like bashing them on the ground or Jesus. stabbing them with knives. But um, to get into them and then also even, I like, the – carrot. That makes me sad. The finesse of – getting a job yeah like you can't just walk up and be like i want to kill animals no <laughs> yeah like why do you want this job i love killing animals yeah he, he talks a lot about that so these people have to like they have to continue have to, to interview they have to get jobs in other parts of the company and then work for the company for a while and then work their Jesus. way into places where they get to see the animals yeah there was one this is horrifying legit. but there's one part where uh this guy works for a chicken farm and he wants to know what happens to the male the males because you just asked no he couldn't but the hens don't the male chicks they grind them up yeah well it, no one knew this at the time i knew it well, they knew that they were gassed if you don't um, understand what i'm saying out there worldwide listeners the male chicks um when a hen lays some eggs and some chicks are born the female ones are able to make eggs or they use them for food but the male ones they're just for nothing so they literally stick them into a huge ass grinder. This place was like and grind them up tens of thousands a day. So like little baby chicks, immediate like the cutest little thing you've ever seen, <laughs> is thrown into a grinder and ground up. So they had to like, like is, I mean, is that not just the most horrific thing you've ever thought about? Yeah, well, I say, but people didn't know this until Mercy for Animals. Like yeah. literally, this guy in this company is the reason that you know that. No, I knew it before that. Um. Do you not know who I am? I know, but I'm pretty sure they were the first people to expose. He that. just he told me personally like, ver- before they exposed. <laughs> verify it. it. Called but me anyway. up and was like, "Hey," because um, I didn't realize this. Like where the chicks are birthed, I guess that's its own operation. 
So they, they... You mean where they lay eggs? Yeah. Or where they crack open? The, yeah, they crack open, and then they ship them off to all these companies. And then companies. they're like, you're a boy, damn it. Yeah, and he, so he, this one guy got a job for, like, one of those companies, but they wouldn't even let him in, like, where anything hatches. And then he asked, he was like, you know, he was like a mechanic. He's like, I don't really have a lot of stuff to fix. I'm bored. I want to make some more money. You know what um, I want to know? Can I clean? And they were like, sure, you can be like a janitor. So, so they let him start cleaning the main rooms. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, you know what? Um, I want to I want to see what happens to the to the male chicks. And yeah. they wouldn't let him. His closed doors, completely like high level. So he just started hanging out with people. And he would have to go out and get drunk with these guys and get on them. a level of like friendship. And then he befriended them on he, like, like a party drunk level. He like bums a smoke. He's like, hey man, can I get a smoke? So like, uh, what happens to those chicks? No, like out at a bar, they were like just getting drunk. He's like, dude, you got to let me into this room tomorrow. And I got to see. They were like, yeah, dude, we'll show you. We'll show you what goes on. And he got into this oh. room. He was kicked out quickly by uh, a manager, but he got into this room and got the footage. Jesus. Everything they do comes down to getting the footage because yeah. they're all about actual litigation and prosecution right. and um, it wasn't just I want to see this and I'm going to tell people about no. it. They need actual proof. And this guy got in and oh, saw yeah, yeah. these chicks just literally alive Being get ground up, like a, essentially you, put into a blender. Making that that uh, that the face, toss? that motion. I didn't do the. Yeah, he's like he's like you're playing basketball or something. It's insane. But the book is cool for that level. Like it. Yeah. It takes you into that world of like, ooh, wow, these are sneaking it's around. Like an investigation. And, yeah. People regard people love an investigation regardless. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So, and that's that's the bulk of the book. So that was that was highly great. recommended. That was great. Everyone, go buy it. That was the best Nathan Runkle interview I've heard yet. That was the best. I don't think I've seen a better interview in the world. <laughs> He's been interviews. doing these all week, and I've been listening to them because I want to like hear we were this like, guy. We're be the best man. Um, my my questions that I had planned were like, do you have a do you have a significant other? Like yeah, how's Miley Cyrus? That's like what I wanted <laughs> I to ask. ask about Bob Barker, but no. Um, I think it went really well, and I think it was clear that um, we understood what that book was about, and yeah, um, you know what what he's trying to get out there. So okay, all right. Are we done? Lisa beats your meat. Episode twenty is over. We just hit an hour. We're not gonna do the backwards, you know, like we're not gonna segment through all one through nineteen. Oh no, Looking that's back. that's episode twenty. Yeah. There's Robert Porter There's Murray. Did you hold on? Did you like how our neighbor Eloise came down during it? Oh my gosh! I told her they're downstairs recording a podcast. It's okay. That's oh you. Dad. You blew it. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Jimmy's uh, we yeah. gotta go. <laughs> we, we were interrupted by our neighbor, but she's cool. She's the best. I kind of want to call her. What? Really bad. What's going on? You know, she probably walked down to us and was like, "What the hell are they doing?" How do you explain to your neighbor like we're recording a vegan podcast? Well, we'll tell her. Okay. Um, good. She's still up there. Yeah. I'm Okay, we're coming up. Okay, I gotta go. Um, that was Lisa Beach Me, episode twenty with Nathan Runkle. Um, please go seriously, like look, buy his book, Mercy for Animals: One One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. I got it off of Amazon Kindle. It was like eleven ninety nine. The hard copy's on there too, Do um, it. for a little bit more. But Do I it. highly recommend reading it, regardless of what you eat or what you don't eat just a good read yeah and if you're even interested and you don't read it then you're ignoring something that you know you shouldn't be ignoring Uh, but we gotta go all right episode 20 good night